Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Vanamali Mataji. Mataji resides in Vanamali Ashram in Rishikesh, India. Vanamali is an ardent Krishna devotee or bhakta, and the name Vanamali is itself one of the names of Lord Krishna. Mataji always dresses in lavender, as that is the color of Krishna in transcendence. She has published many books on the Hindu gods, the complete life of Krishna, the complete life of Rama, Shiva, stories and teachings from the Shiva Mahapurana, Hanuman, devotion and power of the monkey god, the science of the rishis, in the lost city of Krishna, Nitya Yoga, essays on the Bhagavad Gita, and more. Mataji regularly conducts classes on the Vedic way of life and the Srimad Bhagavata excuse me, Srimad Bhagavad Gita, both in the ashram and abroad. The ashram is run by her brother, Mohanji, who is an exemplary karma yogi. The ashram does a lot of charitable work in both Rishikesh and in a small Himalayan village called Gaja. About a hundred widows are being given rations and many have also been adopted by various philanthropists all over the world. They also help in running a small village school in Gaja and a tribal school in the Wayanad district of Kerala. So with that, hello, Mataji, how are you today? Namaste, I'm fine, thank you. Very happy to meet you at last, face to face. Yes, it's very <laughs> nice to meet you as well. Very, I'm very looking, much looking forward to having this conversation. So we had discussed maybe you starting with a mantra. So would you like to uh, maybe start with that mantra and then uh, tell us what it means or the significance of it? Yeah. Um... Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara, Guru Sakshat Parabrahma, Tasmai Shri Gurave, Namaha, Shri Vatsangam Mahoreskam, Vainamala Virajitam, Shankachakradaram Devam, I bow to the Guru, who is Brahma, Vishnu, and Maheshwara. I bow to Lord Krishna, the presence of the universe. Hariyom. Thank you so much, Mataji. That was beautiful. Um, so uh, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. As I said today, we're going to talk about a number of things. Um, uh, specifically, we're going to connect it to this concept of, of religious fundamentalism, which you and I had agreed um, would be um, an interesting topic to explore. And we're going to talk about that topic by addressing a number of of, of different questions about the Sanatana Dharma, um, which uh, for the listeners is a, is a term for the Hindu tradition. Um, and so before we get started with all of that though, uh, Mataji, I would love to just get a little bit of details about your story. You now live in Rishikesh, you do all this wonderful charitable work. What got you from you know your, your early stages in life to the work that you're doing now? I have, I'm totally not to be blamed for anything I do. The whole Leela is by Lord Krishna. Mm. I'm just, I just go where he leads me, that's all. <laughs> Beautiful. So did you grow up in Rishikesh or did you grow up in another uh, uh, state of India? No, I'm from Kerala, actually. Okay. The southernmost uh, state of uh, India. Lovely. So um, 
you are a, a, a devotee of Krishna, as it said in, in the in in the in the bio. Um, but uh, how does that fit into the Sanatana Dharma more generally? Meaning, you know, how does one be both a either a Shiva devotee or a Krishna devotee or a goddess devotee and still be under this umbrella of Sanatana Dharma? Can you explain how that works? Well, uh, you see the Hinduism and Sanatana Dharma will actually uh, puts forth a facade of a number of gods. <laughs> In fact, I always say we have a super uh, supermarket of gods. <laughs> but actually speaking, that, as I said, is only a facade. Because uh, what we really believe in, the fundamental truth, is not God, G-O-D, as we know it, as when we say the word God, you think of many things, many types of forms. But um, for us, that God or that fundamental reality or supreme power is a formless, timeless, spaceless, nameless entity, which is the foundation of everything else. Everything, meaning everything, the entire cosmos is there because it is exists. And that is, you must be knowing, is called the Brahman, the Brahman. It is totally beyond uh, the, any mental concept because it is beyond time and space. And we can only, the mind can only uh, see in forms of time and space as well as name and form, Nama Rupa. So we can't conceive of such a, such a being, let us say. Even when to call it a being is wrong. But what... The, uh, the Hindus realize that uh, that uh, the human heart or the human mind craves for some reciprocity in their in their uh, approach to God. So and and the Brahman needs nothing from us. He, it, it does not care whether you worship it or not. Mm. It is totally um, you know be, it is just there. It's, it's a support of everything. It's like the sun. The sun is a because of the sun, this whole planet exists. The whole planet is actually the everything flowers and everything lives because of the sun. But the sun itself, we, we don't really, it doesn't need us. It, it's not dependent on, on us, you see. It is just there. And because of it, we exist. But it does not exist because of us. Similarly, that Brahman is, does not need our worship. And it is ever there, existing for anyone at all times, at all space, and for the whole of creation as we know it. So then, as I said, the human heart longs for some uh, reciprocity in, in, uh, from the, uh, any, any deity. So then uh, Sanatana Dharma said, from Arushi, uh, let's say, from the ages, they said, okay, then, uh, since that is everything, including ourselves, mind you, that's very important. If that is everything, we are also included in that. So then you can worship any form that you like that is appealing to your heart and mind because it's, it's very unfair to tell everybody that you should worship only one form or, or follow one path or to, you know, there's only one sort of approach to that supreme uh, power. Because all of us are different and made in different ways. Mm. And all of us have our own ideas and ideologies and we, we like our, to go in our own way. And we can't, we, we can't, it's just kind of, we can't fit into that pattern 
one pattern which is because the whole of humanity cannot be cast into one pattern. <clears throat> Hence, all these various different types of gods we see in millions of gods which we see. In fact, we are the only religion which has created our own gods. We can we have a god for everything. Yeah, if you want to obstacles removed, go to uh, Ganesha. If we want uh, Shakti and Bhakti and all that, we go to Hanuman. If we want peace and contentment, go to Vishnu or Krishna. So this is there for so anyone can go to any of these gods and worship without any problem, provided is very important. Provided you understand that the every one of them is only an aspect or only a uh, flame or flicker from that enormous power of 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 um, you know consciousness, pure satchitarananda existence, consciousness, and bliss, which is the foundation of the, this whole entire universe. So any form you can superimpose on that, it is absolutely okay. If it is done with this understanding, if it's not done with this understanding, then it becomes idolatry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so all of us, a Krishna Bhakta can as easily go to a Shiva, um, Shiva's temple or a um, Rama temple or a Hanuman temple, or we can go easily to a church or a Gurudwara or a masjid or anything, because we see everything as permeated by that one supreme power. There is no other power. That alone exists, and that alone has existed and will continue to exist, even when this whole cosmos is taken back. There's a withdrawal into the essence. That's a, it, it, it's a cyclical process. Time for us is cyclical. It's not linear. Mm -hmm. So one creation is followed by us for a, for a long time. It exists, and then there is a, a dissolution. So, um, so uh, in terms of the supermarket of gods, as you were saying, so the idea is that you know the supermarket is there because of the various dispositions of human beings. Like people are different, so they have the option to choose a god that resonates with their uh, character. Um, but when you were talking about Krishna, you were talking about Krishna sort of calling you. So in a sense, Krishna chose you. So is, is can you experience it like that as well? And, and it's not so much choosing a god, but a god sort of um, one of those aspects sort of calling you in some way. Exactly. Like when we say the guru knows you, we might not know the guru, but when we are ready for it, the guru knows you and will come to you. That is the correct way it's normally done. Similarly, you see, I come from a background of a family of Krishna Bhaktas. We must have been for generations, and I'm sure for many lives I was a Krishna Bhakta. So obviously, it, he appears to me. I don't have to go running after him. He, he, once you're a devotee, he will follow you, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it is is it a, a pattern in India that individuals will shift uh, uh, this word? Uh, we haven't talked about it specifically yet, but Ishta Deva, right, is the term we're talking about, which is your essentially your chosen aspect mm -hmm. of the of the divine. Um, mm -hmm. And will it happen that some people will sort of shift, you know, from, for example, uh, a Shiva uh, Bhakta to a Krishna Bhakta? It depends. Some some of them are confused, especially now. Mm. The modern uh, Hindu youth uh, and, and have not been brought up according to the ideals of the Sanadana Dharma. A whole 
our whole culture has been shattered by so much of uh, foreign conquest, and especially the British conquest, which was an ideological conquest, because they tried to tell us that their, their culture, 2,000-year-old culture, was superior to our 50,000-year-old culture. And we believed it. That's the problem. We were to totally indoctrinated that, that this was a superior culture. And so the modern generation has been brought up with that idea. So th that that whole way of life, Hinduism is a way of life. That way of life has been distorted in for the past, let's say, about at least um, three to four hundred years. So the, these these poor people are just confused. So they don't know which tradition they belong to, and because their parents who have not taught them which tradition, so they flit from one to another. But that's okay un until they find a guru, I think, and the guru actually will tell them which is the best uh, suitable path for them uh, because uh, somehow they instinctively feel that that is the best suited. But many of them are very, very definite, definite that this is the path, this is the um, ishta which I, will, I like to follow. Yeah. yeah. So um, more on that, you know, obviously you're talking about the devastating impact of the colonial you know, inheritance um, from the British Empire and the way that that's affected the culture in India. Um, do you see there to be any benefit to what one of the byproducts, maybe later historically to that, has been that Hinduism has essentially spread outside of India in many ways, and many people now in the West especially, I feel like, are, are re-encountering God in a less rigid way because the as we're talking about with this very open-minded approach to the divine where you know because you have a different character you can have a different kind of relationship with an aspect of the divinity because the divine god is so multifaceted that it can encompass absolutely everything so do you see that as actually being um, at all a good thing that that hinduism has has, you know, even though in its homeland it has been affected very, the culture of it has been affected very negatively, the spread of the ideas, the religious ideas, has actually transformed many people's lives, I think, for the better in terms of seeing God differently. But actually speaking, in from very ancient times, there was only one religion in the world, and that was Hinduism. You will see, still see uh, aspects of that all over Southeast Asia. In, in, in Myanmar, in, uh, even in China, Japan, um, Java, ancient Java, Indonesia, then Burma, so so many places. It, it, it was the only religion at that time, Malaysia. You see the, the, see, see the temp, ancient temples, even in places like Lebanon, for instance. Mm. One of the names which are given to the children even now is, is Hindu, Hindu. <laughs> so you, it was, it had spread all over Southeast Asia, and even the ideas were taken uh, to the West by the Arab traders used to come. Most of the knowledge which the West has now has already been, was there in Bharat long, long, long ago. So that is one aspect of it. We did not need the colonial uh, expansion in order to... Right. But you are right, in the modern times, of course, I would say that in one way that is good, that it has spread. But then on the contrary, a lot of media has been working to try and bring it down. Yes. For some reason, I don't know why, there's a lot of it going around uh, that 
they just want to bring it down, bring out the worst aspects of India and it's projected. Um, that is so I, I just don't understand it. But yeah. how do you how do you that, feel about how do you feel about the modern postural yoga being what is mostly found in the West or what most people associate with India in, in the West, you know, people that aren't educated, obviously, um, are less educated. What, what is your feeling about, about that uh, situation? What, what do you mean by yoga? Uh, like uh, uh, asana. So how asana has been uh, transmitted mostly, oh, yeah. but not as much the, yeah, yeah. the spiritual teachings. Yeah, yeah, that that is a pity, I feel, because yoga, according to the West, is only the yoga asanas, hatha yoga. Mm -hmm. But uh, yoga, according to us, is a very, very wide meaning. Yoga, the whole of life should be a yoga. Mm -hmm. Ideally, life should be lived in a life of yoga, because yoga just comes from the word huge to unite. And any action, any action which will uh, try to unite you to that supreme, can be called a yoga. That's why the the, um, the Bhagavad Gita has 18 chapters, and all of them are known as a yoga, mm -hmm. including including the very first chapter, which is <clears throat> Arjuna Vishada Yoga, or the um, yoga of Arjuna Sorrow, which means even sorrow can be a yoga if it directs you to God. That's beautiful. I love yeah. that. I mean, it highlights the fact that every human experience can be a doorway if perceived in the correct way, right? In fact, it, it has to be. It has to be. The, uh, Krishna says that 24 hours yoga is what he demands. That's why my uh, essays on Bhagavad Gita is known as called Nitya Yoga or the yoga of constant communion. Mm. How does one... Every so how does one stay? Can you get, you know, for those listening, you know, it sounds beautiful, constant union, but how do I cultivate that? You can do it only when you realize that this entire universe, entire world, every stone, stick, and mud, dot of dust is, is only imbued with that divine spirit. So that when you train your, your mind to see nothing but that divinity anywhere, everywhere, Vasudeva Sarvamidhi, Samahatma Sadurlaba is what he says in, in the seventh chapter of the Gita. That means he who sees Vasudeva or, or God, Supreme God, in everything, such a, a Mahatma, he's a Mahatma, he's a great soul who can do that, he says. Mm -hmm. And that is the only way. Otherwise, how can we keep on uh, con constantly thinking you can't? You can't keep on saying Krishna, Krishna, Ram, 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 and your mind is busy doing something else yeah that doesn't yeah. work so you have to train your mind to see him everything when i look in your eyes what do i see i see myself and who is myself but that with the self of the whole universe mm. isn't it it's beautiful yeah so you know i i love this teaching it's so it's so um profound and yet people get struggle with it when they encounter and this is something that when i was preparing for this interview you said something very interesting about evil so when people encounter you know terrible things happening in the world when they look at the news and they see all of the hate and and they're and then at the same time they're supposed to be following a teaching of seeing 
um, God everywhere, it sounds like it's also saying including in all of the bad stuff. So can you talk about that and, and how we yeah. grapple with that? Yeah, because uh, it, it, for us, everything emanates from uh, Brahman. But, uh, but that emanation in the world is a world of duality. So light and shade, night and death, sorrow and joy, happiness, unhappiness, evil and good. <laughs> you cannot bifurcate the two. And then, you see, because that is the, the Western scholars, they, they didn't know how to, how to deal with, uh, with the question of evil. So they promptly created a devil on whose poor head all evil was kept. <laughs> but we didn't do that. So we didn't do that. We said, if God is omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Everything has to come from him, both evil and good. You cannot say that somebody else is evil and that that means God is not omnipotent. He's impotent because everything he does can be brought down by the devil. So that that is the important thing that whatever so-called evil which we see, which the, the criminal... Uh, things which are being done as it uh, asuric uh, forces we have daivik and asuric forces these forces are constantly fighting with each other on on a um, internal inside us in the society as well internationally as well as, as in in a transcendental plane sometimes one wins sometimes the other wins so this goes on but unless we accept the fact that this is also that supreme power. We can never come to terms with life as it is. We'll keep on blaming God for something or other. And when, when there is, we can't blame God for anything. We have created this. If we have created a hell in this earth, it is our fault. Because we were capable of creating a heaven, but we chose to create a hell. That's why, in, again, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, if there is a heaven, he says, it has to be found here and now. The sarga is what he says. Here and now. How can you, you cannot postulate a heaven which you can get only after death. That doesn't work, you see. Mm. Mm. So this is something we have to, and the only thing we, how, what can we do? The only thing we can change is our own selves. And if some people start changing our own selves, when you start putting out positivity, positive thoughts, because remember, you're so totally connected with every single thing in this whole cosmos. One little leaf or flower falling on the ground has reverberations up to the very planet's end of the universe. If we are so, just we can know this most by our breath. The, the, we, all the five elements, we are totally connected with all the five elements. We are made out of that. Our bodies are made out of that. And the world is also made out of that. So each of these elements keep on supporting us. And we have to support it back. If we don't do that, then we are bringing trouble on ourselves. Now, just take breath, for instance. If you know how closely we are connected with this universe, just try closing your nose for some minutes and you will see how long you can live when you close your nose. So it's just not possible to live without the support of the universe. And if we don't realize this, and we don't give back what we get, then we are bound to suffer, you see, because that's not the, the cosmic law. That's not the cosmic dharma. Mm -hmm. 
because with dharma is that there should be an interchange there should be a relationship between everything with you and everything in this universe not just with every human being it means every single animal when we when we uh, kill an animal in order to feed our own uh, because to satisfy our own palate not not to feed a uh, you know hunger or anything but just to satisfy a palate for a few seconds mind you we are denying the right to that animal to live as it would like to live now we we like we, we should not we cannot deny anything to anyone we should give as much freedom to everything as we would like for ourselves that is how the universe is created that is the cosmic dharma everything is to be done for the sake of that dharma not for personal gain not for selfish motives If, and that, if that is followed, there will be no problem. But when people see that nothing but their own selfish interests, that is what they call an asuric temperament. Mm. And sometimes it happens that those forces become more strong, and the uh, you know divine forces become weaker. This this this, this is what the all the wars in a, in a Puranas are about. Always, sometimes one side, sometimes the other. So now the world is passing through something like that, but it will again balance itself, and because it's cyclical, it yeah. cannot last forever. Yeah. Even if you're very unhappy, you can be sure after some time you'll be happy, mm. and if you're very very happy, you can be sure that you sometime you'll be unhappy. Yeah. So we yeah. cannot have a, a, you know a complete uh, happiness or something from an incomplete dual dualistic world. So do you see um this you know this the obviously the the yugas are an um, important teaching in the sanatana dharma of these cyclical periods of time uh that we move through and um and I mean pe- different people have different you know sketches of where we're at but you know everybody essentially says that we're in the kali yuga right which is the sort of age of darkness um do you feel that we are in a transitional moment and moving in the direction of the satyuga or what is your perspective on that is that something you think about <clears throat> yeah definitely that after after um, kali yuga you should we should go back to satyuga but sometimes uh, people say that <clears throat> nature you know doesn't suddenly shift there's no sudden shift right it's all very gradual yeah so it's possible that we go back to dwapara and then so on that's what they some people say because everything in nature that never makes a sudden shift like that yeah. and another re- reason why we are these yugas and is that you know not our our solar system is actually the whole solar system is going around another huge sun and huge solar system and the farther away we are from that source that is kali yuga mm. the farther away we are uh, the source of uh all power that is kali yuga and the closer we come to that source the, then satya yuga starts again i see so it's sort of like the orbit when we're getting closer we at <clears> one <throat> part of the orbit we're closer to that sort of supreme sun basically ah okay. it's it's because the orbit is elliptical it's not absolutely circular it's elliptical and this whole solar system is also is going round in an elliptical orbit round another uh, enormous sun and uh, so another solar system mm. which is a source of uh, a great power which is even greater power than our sun has, a million fold times power than our sun has 
So the farther away we go from that source, that is when Kali Yuga starts. Mm. So I feel yeah. like we're talking a little bit about, um, you know, the Vedic way of life generally. But I was wondering, um, because this is something you teach about quite a bit, if you could describe sort of the defining features of what the Vedic way of life is, what that, what, what it would be like to take up that uh, way of life. Well, the most basic uh, thing that is, which is basic to all uh, uh, Vedic way of life, is the recognition of the fact that we are not solitary, isolated individual beings standing here. We are totally, totally connected with the entire universe and everything in it. Because we imagine that, I mean, it is so, so absurd. Just a little bit of, uh, you know, understanding of the way the world is. We are, there is this big, big ball of sphere, really speaking. And we are all standing perpendicularly on this, mm -hmm. isn't it? Just imagine, why are we not falling off by, like nine pins from a, <laughs> where a ball is gone? <laughs> this, this is one of the basic things if you think of. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And and then and then this ball is rotating at enormous speed around another you know huge ball of fire. And do you think all this does not affect us? Every single movement of this world, every single movement of all the planets that we see affects us. That is a basic assumption of the Vedic dharma. There is a cosmic dharma which. Uh, you know, keeps the whole thing, in, makes the whole thing into a cosmos and not a chaos. It is Why is it the universe is not in a chaos like the traffic on our Indian uh, roads? <laughs> because there is that dharma, there is this cosmic dharma which f fuses, which keeps everything together in a proper place. Now, when the human being does not recognize this, when the human being decides that he is the master of this universe mm. and everything here is working for his sake, then naturally you go against the cosmic dharma. So the main thing for the to be for the child, um, um, you know, a Hindu child to be taught is that you are part of this universe from the time you get up till the time you you uh, you go to sleep, unless you even from the time you're born to the time you are you are dead. You should remember this. The moment we get up, we are told to, to, to just touch the earth and tell her, forgive me, I'm going to stamp on you today. <laughs> the original mother. Mm -hmm. that, we start with that. And then we go on to, uh, before, before, after you do all your, and everything is divine. Everything is imbued with divinity. That's why before we take a bath, we make a prayer. Let this water. Now, uh, there's this water, which is uh, actually, you invoke all the rivers, and we take that bath. Now, this has been proved by modern science that water has memory. Water, the mo water molecules will are totally incoherent, but when we put positive thoughts into them, they become very coherent. Mm. Same with our food. Before we eat a food, we will say a prayer so that actually the molecules actually become more coherent. The Japanese scientists has discovered this now, but we knew that long, long ago. But because the Japanese scientists have said so, now slowly the world is also probably agreeing with it. Mm -hmm. So everything, as I said, from the time you get up in the morning, then before that, before you have your own breakfast, you're supposed to go out and feed the, the birds, give something, some grain or something, feed a cow or a dog or whatever it is that you have. 
and water a plant. We all have a tulsi plant in our house. So that this means you are showing your allegiance to the plants, plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, to the cosmos, and that's how we are totally connected with that. That memory should be with us. That is the Vedic form. If that memory is there, the whole world, the world will be such a beautiful place because there is so much of love for everything, every creature, and the, this world which we live in, and other human beings. We, of course, there's no need even to say. Uh, we all know that we should love our neighbor, even he was a rascal and rogue. But we have been told we should love him. So the, the, re the reason why we should love him is what he knows. He might be a rascal and a rogue, but then he still has a spark of divinity in him. Mm. And therefore, try to find that divinity in him. Because the other is only an external show. Yeah. His reality is divine. So I want to uh, go back a little bit to something you had mentioned when you were talking about, um, you know, chanting mantras or doing prayers and how that affects the physiological. Um, and this, of course, brings up the topic of mantra, mantra and the role of sound in, in um, the Siddhartha Dharma tradition. So, um, you know, I feel like this is one of the most powerful teachings and something that is just not even considered in the Western world really is the role and the power of sound um, to transform. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about the science and the philosophy of sound um, as it's understood in the Sanatana Dharma? Uh, you see, our language in which all these things were written is Sanskrit, as you yeah. know. Yeah. And Sanskrit is really the master of sounds, I would say, though. Sanskrit language is composed of the different various sounds which our human tongue can make. And then, of course, we all know, it's very, they, they were the ones who discovered um, the, the power of sounds, which is only a very recent uh, sort of an experiment in the West. But they realized that sounds have a tremendous power. So they, the mantras are the, the methods of the rishis took to try and capture the, the form of the divine, of, of those di different divinities. They captured that form into that sound. So that it is said that in a certain number of times that the mantra for that specific divinity is chanted, the form will actually take place. Mm. You will start seeing that form. So because form and name and form go together, the rishis, you know, they tried to bring that uh, soundless or uh, formless divine into some form, into two types of forms. They tried it with sounds as well as with forms which are the yantras. Mm -hmm. huh. So the sound form of the deity is a mantra. And, uh, you know, uh, the... The form which you can see is yantra. So each day you will find will have their own mantra and their own yantra also. So they try to capture that which is um, not available to the ordinary language through these sound forms and uh, written forms. So mantras are very very powerful because, as I said, every every sound you know you make if you 
if you see if you if i say cat you will think of something which goes meow meow you won't think of something which goes wow wow so that that sound cat is associated with a form so these mantras if, but one important fact about this is that the mantra has to be chanted correctly mm-hmm. you know when you when you start talking a different language and you go and you you come to india and you think you know hindi and you say something in hindi and the person looks at you quite blankly and you think you are saying the right word but the person doesn't understand you because you're not saying it pronouncing it correctly <laughs> very often it happens we come here and uh, you know westerners try to say think that they know hindi and they tell you something and i look blankly at them because i don't know what the hell they're talking about <laughs> Now it might be the same with you when somebody goes there and we say something in an Indian accent you won't understand. So the mantra has what is important is them is not the meaning but the sound. Mm. And that's why I always tell those Vaishnavas who try to learn the mantra that you should learn it from a guru who will teach you the proper pronunciation because if it is mispronounced it can even have opposite effect. very very important and in the western uh, you know method of uh, english phrases it it does not cover all the sounds which the uh, the tongue can make so it's very important for them especially that they sit learn how to repeat the properly so the question about uh, religious fundamentalism that's sort of framing our discussion today a little bit we're talking a lot about the features of the sanatana dharma and i think anybody who's listening who is not familiar with um, the features of that should you know uh, now understand how different it is from um, religions that you find in the west um, which tend to have a much more rigid uh, sometimes um, uh, approach to their uh, deity. So, can you talk a little bit about religious fundamentalism and why you find it to be such a uh problematic um thing that's happening in the world right now? Well, fundamentalism is only due to the fact of ignorance of the nature of God. Mm. <laughs> Total ignorance of the nature of God. They have uh you have brought God down to our own miserable little human uh you know <laughs> this thing and we ex- we expect him to behave like we do yeah now that especially when when and when they say that god is the only god and anyone who does not believe in that god is a heretic and deserves to go to hell that is a very root of fundamentalism because that means what sort of a god is it who will only uh appear only do something for that chosen few or for those who worship him or for those who love him or adore him it if, if there is a god if an omnipresent omniscient being it should be available to everyone at all times in all places from the creation of time not in some particular limit which this god has suddenly appeared and only that is the right god that is a fundamental difficulty with fundamentalism and that is only because of ignorance mm. so hinduism actually we always say that ignorance is the only sin mm. we have no idea of we are ignorant of the nature of god 
We are ignorant of the nature of this universe and we are ignorant of the nature of our own selves. It's a triple ignorance. Yeah. So, and not leave that, at least with ignorance, leave it. But we are insistent that only our view is the correct view. Now, if we, if we want to feel that we are correct, should we not give the same freedom to another to worship their God as they like? Isn't that freedom to be given? When we deny that freedom, then it turns into fundamentalism. And this is the problem with the world today. Really speaking, we don't have any other problem. Yeah. Everybody are quarreling about the nature of a God, which they've never seen. Nobody has ever seen and will never see. Yet all the quarrels are going on about this. Why don't they bother about all the things which are happening in this world? People are starving. People are you know, unhappy. Why don't they try to right these wrongs instead of quarreling about a God which nobody has seen? It's amazing, this uh, uh, apparently intelligent creature that the, of the, the human being calls himself should, can't even see this. It's a, the saddest thing of all, I would say. Mm, yeah. And that is the very root of fundamentalism is only ignorance. How do you, um, because of course I, I know very well what fundamentalism, how it shows up in the United States where I live. Um, but how does fundamentalism show up um, in India from in your experience? Here, everybody tries to convert the Hindus <laughs> because <laughs> the Christians will try to convert the Hindus. Uh, the Muslims will try to because the Christians cannot convert Muslims and the Muslims cannot convert Christians. They're all very determined and uh, very, you know, uh, steadfast in their beliefs. The poor Hindu, on the other hand, is a wavering sort of a a uh, foolish creature, really speaking. That here. <laughs> we don't care. We don't. And then these uh, Christians now they bring uh, like to to try to uh, you know entice. Normally they they will uh, the, all their actions are towards the very very poor people, tribals, so that they can entice them with some money, or and also they will bring out uh, like pictures of Christ holding saying, giving the Gita, standing in a chariot, and all the different um, Hindu symbols they bring in to try and tell these people that this is um, only a type of Hindu. You might as well call yourself. There's no problem with that. And they will believe because they don't mind you know, adding one more God to their numerous uh, list of gods, you see. Mm -hmm. And if they get benefit out of saying, calling themselves Christians, well, why not? That is their attitude. Whereas that same thing can never be applied even to the poorest of the Muslims or the poorest of the uh, Christians in India. And in Kerala especially now, there is a what they call a love jihad by which the um, Muslim boy is given a tremendous amount of uh, money if he can marry a, a Hindu girl of a higher caste or a Jain girl or a Brahmin girl. They get money for that. They entice them, and then they become, it's a racket. It's a tremendous racket which is going on in Kerala now. Mm. Because they're determined. There's so much of uh, this thing. In, it's a race between Christianity and uh, Islam in Kerala as far as they're concerned. And Hindus do nothing about it. I don't know why, but we uh, just remain. And, uh, you know, we, we say some things and all, but we don't really do anything much about it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a sad state. So um, to go back to what you said about 
uh, Hindus, in a sense, kind of being impressionable in that way easily? Because is that, you know, it's because, for example, a Hindu could worship Jesus because they would see that Jesus, just like Shiva and Krishna and um, the forms of Shakti, is also an aspect of the absolute. Is that? Yes, yes. We're very, we're very happy to accept uh, Christ as another avatar, mm -hmm. but the Christians won't accept that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because they have only, he's the only avatar. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But for us, we have numerous avatars. Yeah, that's exactly. totally different. Yeah, totally. Uh, so the, the fundamentalism comes in, in the Abrahamic religions because they have only one avatar, only one god, and and and, and that is a, you know, in a form, in one form which one they have form. chosen. And and just recently, mind you, when we consider the the enormous time the world has gone through, these are very recent gods. Yeah, and. To say that unless you believe in that particular form, you are a heretic and condemned to eternal hell is, is so unreasonable. I really don't understand how the modern scientific-minded uh, human being can actually swallow this. Yeah. It's very strange. Um, yeah, it is very strange. I mean, I think that on the one in particularly in, in this country, you are, the scientifically-minded tend to be atheistic, which is just as... Pro problematic because they base the reason they're atheists is because they deny the rigid monotheistic God but actually if they did understand more the kind of possibility of what God can be as we've been discussing then atheism yeah. isn't as easy to claim because you know if you yeah. if you recognize that God is in every particle of existence how do you yeah. deny that God exists you know Exactly. So that that is because of, that's why I'm saying we come back to the fundamental question of ignorance. Ignorance, yeah. atnyana, that is the root of all our troubles. If we know who you are, who, who, if I know who I am and this, what God is, I mean, to the extent that my mind can know yeah. that is a transcendent yet imminent being and the nature of the world, which is so closely connected with us. If we know these, these uh, triple things, we would not have fundamentalism, you know. Yeah. And it's so reasonable and so scientific. Modern science has proved that almost everything that the Hindus have taught is scientific, has a basis in science. Mm. It's not an unreasonable uh, religion at all. No, not at all. Beautiful. Well, this has been lovely. I have. I want to end on um, a positive and uplifting devotional note. So I want to circle back a little bit to... Um, for our kind of final, the final part of our conversation to um, the book that you recently wrote, which I read because um, I did a review for it for our um, soon to be published uh, print edition of Tarka in uh, The Lost City of Sri Krishna. And in that, you know, you, this is um, essentially an account of your own experience of Leela. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. That's the only thing, my only book I've ever written, which I've brought my myself into it, rather. Yeah. And that was a revelation, revelation, really speaking. I mean, I don't know how I wrote it. I have no idea. It was a, <laughs> it was something which is totally beyond my control. It was like a, a trance-like experience. Uh, yeah, but also because here, you know, I have, I, I have to go from the uh, sacred to the secular, from. <laughs> From uh, you know, the, um, people will come and meet me, and then I'll come back here, and, I, and then again, again, I'm in a world of my own. Yeah. 
yeah. when these experiences seem, seem, seem just to take place. And I, I, there was sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean that it was a very strange experience. I, I that's all I can say. I mean, it's beautiful and it's it's interesting. Um, to because a lot of we hear about Leela's, of course, uh, for anybody that's familiar with the the, the kind of uh, Vaishnava bhakti traditions, um, but we very rarely get a firsthand account of um, such a rich uh, rich uh, um, experience of it, and it was very beautiful. And I felt like um, it really more than any other thing else I've ever read. I felt like it made Krishna feel very close, like very present. Um, in yeah. a, and very much uh, a close friend in a way that I, I've, I haven't experienced even reading the Bhagavad Gita. So it's very beautiful. Um, and, um, Have you read uh, Sri Krishna Lila? Did you read Sri Krishna Lila? I haven't read that the, one yet. Mm -hmm. Ah, you should read that first, actually, because then you'll know what was li his life was like. Okay, that's, your, that's <laughs> another one of your books, yes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, I think in the, in the States it's just called Krishna, that's all. Krishna. The complete story of Krishna? Uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Have, yeah, the inner tradition. Yes, I have that book, actually. It's somewhere in here. So I'll, I'll read that one after after our interview. <laughs> okay. So is there anything else that you wanted to share about religious fundamentalism or any of the other uh, topics that we've talked about, Mataji? Well, I think you've covered it pretty well. <laughs> So I don't think I need add anything except that I really wish that uh, people would become more aware of what the nature of that transcendental being, which they call God, mm -hmm. and which really cannot be called or personified into anything. You know, we, we are bringing him that, I don't even say him, that to our own level. And a very, very poor level of understanding. How can an ant ever understand a human being just by, you know, nibbling a bit of his toe? That's what we are doing. Yeah, yeah. And, to, and then that's okay if they realize that. But, but to say that that is the only truth. Yeah. That is the most pitiable thing, which shows what a waste of human intellect. You described um, in one of the talks I listened to, I really, I've heard this metaphor or analogy used before, but I really liked the way you um, described it. So maybe you can share it with us again. It's the analogy of the elephant and one guy grabs his foot and one guy grabs his <laughs> trunk. Would you share that with yes, us? Exactly. There are five blind men, actually. They go to see an elephant. And uh, one uh, grabs his foot and says, oh, elephant is like a tree trunk. It's huge. And then somebody touches his ears and he, he says, oh, the elephant is like, you know, winnows. You know, winnow, you know, when you're winnowing, when you are, in olden days, they have a something called a winnow. Then somebody uh, grabbed hold of his uh, tail and he says, oh, elephant is like something like a, you know, snake-like thing with sharp little things at the end. And, and then they all thought that this was the elephant. I mean, they all decided that however much the other person said, no, no, the elephant is like a tree trunk. No, he said, no, it's like a snake. They kept on quarreling and quarreling with each other. And they never got to an end of the, the uh, end of their arguments because they were determined that what they had caught hold of was the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's really so here also, 
and this is also another thing which I will often give the, the, you know, when we are going to uh, some place, uh, people which they, they see, oh, this is uh, so many miles to Washington or whatever, and you catch all of that, uh, that, that post which says that, and, and say that this is the, this is, this is it. This post is it. Though so that, that post is only pointing the way to Washington. It is not Washington. So all these different um, methods, that is, they just point the way to that uh, supreme being. But that is not it. And if you hang on to that post, thinking, this is it. And this is the only thing. That is the basic uh, trouble with the fundamentalism. Yeah. And as I said, I find it very difficult to understand how the modern human being, I can understand ancient ones, Modern human being, scientifically educated human being, can actually believe such rubbish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this I is what I feel. I feel the same. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Really to, sad. It's hard to comprehend. Well, thankfully, people like you are teaching um, the Dharma and and transforming one individual at a time. So, uh, as long as we keep sharing this wisdom, I feel like eventually. Um, we'll move towards greater understanding, hopefully, if people continue to do the work of teaching. Yeah, and I'm, 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 I'm so happy to have met you, and uh, I think you're doing wonderful work, actually. It's amazing how, you know, all over the world, some little pockets here and there, you find this being taught. It's wonderful. I'm so happy to have met someone like you. Oh, thank you, Mataji. I feel the same way. <laughs> So it's been so beautiful to chat with you today. Do you are you interested in sharing a final um, a closing mantra with us? Yeah, sure. Okay. <clears throat> Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Brityorma Amritam Gamaya Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnada Purnamudachade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishade Om Shanti 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 Hari I've been speaking to Vanamali Mataji, who is tuning in from Rishikesh, India. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Mataji. <laughs> Thank you.